You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts, and find us on social media. That means like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and check out our YouTube page. Our guest today is Dean Karalekis. Now, Dean is a really interesting guy. Adventure just seems to follow him around. Originally from Canada, he's had adventures in South Korea, Mongolia, Beijing, Hong Kong, Nepal, Hungary, Washington, D.C., New York, North Korea, Taiwan, Tanzania, Haiti, Malawi, and he recently wrote a book about his adventures in a place called Beer to Will, which is one of the last remaining places on Earth to be considered a terra nullius, or no man's land, literally unclaimed land. His book is called The Men in No Man's Land, A Journey into Beer to Will. So hold on to your seatbelt, grab your passport, because this is going to be a wild ride. Here we go. So Dean, you were, you were born in Canada. I was born in Canada, now, Montreal. Tell, tell us about that. How did, how did that happen? Well, uh, two yeah, people not, love not each other very much. Pornographic parts. <laughs> just, you know, skip that. Did it sound anything like this? <laughs> did it sound it, like that? That is uncanny. It is. Thanks. That's scary. It's yeah. a bit scary. Good. I like it. Wow, I, I got nothing, folks. Oh Sorry. my god, this, this, is, this is not my fortabulous. Oh, it's a baby off. It is a baby <laughs> off. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't even try. So, what did you study? Uh, I studied education. So, I went to McGill. I did a bachelor of education. Uh, I did the physics and geography. I was going to be a, a high school teacher. I decided I didn't really want to jump into teaching high school right after college. I didn't want to be the guy who goes from high school to college to high school and then just spends his whole life. So I wanted to see a little bit of the world before, maybe bring, bring some, some life experience, some world mm. experience in, into the classroom. Yeah. The, the teachers I liked in high school anyway were the ones who had, who had seen the world and who had seen some, some wacky stuff out there and knew more than just what was in the book. And they brought that experience into the classroom and made and made the lessons more interesting. And I wanted, to, if I was going to be a teacher, I wanted to be that kind of teacher. And mm. that's where this conversation is going to start to get interesting because mm. you have been all over the world, haven't you? So it's been boring up to now, then. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. you know, I see okay, what you're I saying you. there. Yeah. You know, I'm just creating contrast. <laughs> see what he did there? Yeah. Just contrast. <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't say all over the world, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm very lucky, uh, blessed, really, that I've had the opportunity to travel. Let's talk about the world. What have you seen? Well, it's round. Okay. Let me just put that Mostly. to rest right now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Is it hollow? That's what we all want to know. Yeah, I don't know right. yet. Okay. <laughs> what was the progression? Like, where did you go first and then where next? Uh, okay. So to pay for school, I used to uh, be in the Canadian Naval Reserve. So I was a sailor. I was an engineer. And I'd go to sea in the summer times. Uh, and you were then Scotty. Yeah, without the accent. <laughs> and it smelled a lot worse in our engine rooms than I'm sure it did on the Enterprise. <laughs> and then for the eight months, I would go to do the semesters for school. So after I graduated, I did one last summer with the Navy uh, out in Halifax, hitchhiked out west because a friend of mine told me there was a lot of jobs out west. Uh, so got to Vancouver. Panning for gold. Um, I wish. It would. Working on the railroad. Yeah, no, I, I ended up, uh, I worked security. They were the only, <laughs> there were no teaching jobs. He lied to me. There were no jobs. But there was a security company that hired me. And so I got to, uh, I, did, I did what they call alarm response. So I'd be driving around in a car uh, at night, doing a night shift in this city that I didn't really know. I didn't know Vancouver very well. But uh, we get an alarm, have to chase down the alarm before the GPS days. So, we, you know, we had the big A to Z. How, the maps on how to get around the city, mm-hmm. uh, investigate the alarm. Most times, touch wood, it was always a fa- false alarm. And, uh, and so I did that for, I think, about a year and a half. And then I got a chance to move over to Korea, South Korea, to teach. And so I said, okay, it's teaching. It's, it's probably a better career path, so I'll take you, it. You were tired of making people feel anxious. Was I making people feel anxious? Well, yeah, you worked in security. Yeah. Oh, in security. Yeah. Do we have is a drummer? There we go. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> that was awful. Yeah, so Korea. Korea and I, I, yeah. I taught there for about a year uh, in a small 
so Bushy Bond, like a small uh, cram school, private school that the kids would go to sort of after, after their school to learn English. Taught, like everybody and his dog taught English back in those days, either Japan or Korea or Taiwan, and nowadays in China. And uh, after my contract there finished, my, uh, my boss owed me a ticket back to Vancouver, but I didn't really want to head back right away. Uh, so I said, save some money, get me a ticket to Mongolia. Uh, so wow. he bought me a one-way ticket to Mongolia. Oh, Mongolia. <laughs> yeah, he dropped me off and there. How, how did you choose that? I, I don't know. Um, you heard they had great yogurt? <laughs> oh. It's the yak butter tea. Yeah, no, I think the it was, milk. I wanted to go, I wanted to see Asia. So I said, all right. And I had this crazy idea I would do it without going on flights. I would do it overland. So I figured I'd start there, head south through China, see China, and then Hong Kong, and then uh, over to the Philippines, up through Indonesia. Um, so, so that's more or less what I did that for the next, I guess, eight months or so. So living out of a little bag. These were the days before the internet. Uh, I mean, there was an internet, but uh, I didn't have an email address. There was no such thing as uh, Facebook or uh, whatever the kids are into these days. So when, I, and when, you, when you were traveling, you could literally just, just die and no one would know where the hell your body was. <laughs> and uh, so it was kind of exciting. It was kind of neat. Hmm. Did you taste the fermented mare's milk? No, I was there that? for the wrong season. Ah, okay. So they didn't have the arag, I think it's called. Yeah, arag. Arag. No, I didn't get the... But I did, so there was, uh, it, was it wasn't very well developed, Mongolia. So Ulan Bator, I managed to... So I, I had met a guy teaching, we were both teaching in Korea. Uh, I forget his name now, but we, we used to drink at the same bar on the weekends. And I expressed my interest in going to Mongolia. And he said, oh, I used to live in Mongolia. I said, really? What can you tell me about it? Well, yeah, I, I can help you, you know, get the invitation. Back then you needed an invitation to be able to get a visa. And so he sent me um, a guy he knew his uh, fax number. Because, again, <laughs> well, it's a long time ago. Yeah. And so I faxed him. He faxed me over the invitation. I brought it over to the uh, Mongolian embassy in Seoul. I, I traced down the address. Somehow I got the address. And it was just a, it was a, a residential building. Hmm. So I went up to the apartment and knocked on the door. And a, a nice old lady opened the door. And she let me into their apartment. And then the guy came out and said, oh, you want a visa? And he brought out the little box and opened the box and it had the stamp and it had the stamp ink. And he, he looked at my passport and he stamped my passport and said, but, you know, have a good time. So wow. they didn't even have an office. It was just some guy's living room. Wow. And uh, when I got to Mongolia, I met with uh, the fellow I had arranged, the fellow with the, the faxes. I rented an apartment from him. So I stayed for the month. Uh, Drinking at the bars, met a couple of German guys in the bar one night. They said, yeah, if you're going to Sokobi Desert tomorrow, perhaps you would join us. It would be very nice if we split the cost. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I just met these guys and it's kind of sketchy. So, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. So we went out to the Gobi Desert and uh, saw, oh, it was just incredible. I mean, at one point, we're just walking on a cracking on dinosaur bones everywhere you walk. Oh, wow. It was one of these places. I think this is where Chapman might have found the, the dinosaur eggs. Wow. You know? And uh, another time, they just uh, suddenly, our drive turned into a hunt. And we, uh, our, our driver, 80-year-old man, just kicked open his door, reached back for his rifle, put it in the crook of the door and started shooting at this gazelle, this herd of gazelle. Got one, field stripped it, and every night we would stay in a, a gear. Just the, like flung it out of the jeep or whatever? Yeah, or? yeah, so he processed it, uh, put it on the, on the roof, and just carried on our way. Mm. <laughs> Who and got the liver? We got the liver. Okay. Did I tell you the liver story? No, but I'm just curious, because it's the whole thing in a wolf pack, and the liver, we, who eats the liver and the heart and all that. We got... Um, all the Hun and Poe. The wit? The Hun and, hun and Poe. <laughs> <laughs> the spirit of the liver. Yeah. It's a Chinese medicine joke. The, the Poe uh, is the corporeal body of the lungs. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, there are like three, three listeners who will get it. Or who ate oh. the Shen. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we didn't eat the heart. We threw out all the, the awful stuff. 
And, uh, sorry. Who ate the balls? The balls? I don't know <laughs> who ate the balls. But uh, we took, we took, we wrapped up the liver and we brought it to. We, we found a homestead. Uh, that's so. That's where we slept. We were at there. We just find a family that was that had a gear and, and, and a herd because they're still they have the, they live the nomadic lifestyle. And uh, and we would impose upon their hospitality. But this time we were able to give them the carcass as a gift. They invited us in. We stayed, and they cooked up the liver that night. And so we all had the the liver. Uh, just just a quick question. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned a gare. Is is a gare similar a, in some way to a yurt? It's exactly a yurt. It's okay. just a different. In Siberia, it's yurt, and uh, that seems to be the standard word here. I think most okay. people, I, I if if I'm talking about a gare. We're using the word yurt, Got but it's the same thing. It's just the, the Mongolian. And can we take that one step further and explain what that is in English? It's a it's a yes. round. Thank you, Satch. <laughs> it's a round portable home, like like a tent, but it's more substantial than a tent. It's made of felt and uh, like a lattice work of uh, wood, mm-hmm. and it's got a hearth in the middle. So, and we would sit around the middle wherever you know, whenever we were there as guests on carpets and uh, drink they, they, they drink vodka out of these these lovely wooden and and like uh, silver plated bowls hmm. uh, and they drink it they drink the vodka hot they melt some butter in it they put some salt in it and that just makes the round the, the, the bowl goes around it sounds good it's not bad butter and salt um, and vodka yeah I can imagine I mean um, mm-hmm. in a in a climate like that where it's dry and cold, having the extra fat and yeah. the warmth, um, I could see that working pretty well. We well, should they, make some. Yeah. They don't, uh, they, they can't grow food. It's the desert. So they, they eat uh, basically the livestock, mm-hmm. which grazes on whatever little you know, tufts of shrubs and growing stuff. up. Uh, the, the shrubbery. Shrubbery. <laughs> the, uh, the hearth, they burn the, the dung. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're cooking your, your meal on a dung fire, but uh, so it's a really harsh life. It's a really harsh life out there, but it was nice. You get to see how other people live. We always took a picture before we left in the morning, and they would always run in to the gear to put on their best clothes. And, oh, like a group, mm. a group, photo. A, group, a group photo. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah mm. So they were excited to have you there. They were, yeah. They uh, so one of the German guys had like a Walkman, uh-huh. and he. I remember he he would here, here give it to the kid. And, He'd show him how to put on the earphones, and he would press play, and he'd have his German thrash metal band start playing. And he wow. was just amazed, just look <laughs> on his face. Wow. Wow. There was something else. interesting. What happened next? What happened after Mongolia? Or was... Where'd you go from there? Well, so I headed south, uh, took the train down to uh, Beijing... And I was there, I got to Beijing the night they handed over Hong Kong. So this would have been uh, 97. Oh. So it was a big party in the street, lots of people out there. Uh, traveled through China for a few weeks, doing mostly the tourist thing, uh, to, uh, down to Hong Kong. Um, again, like I said, popped over to the Philippines. I had, there was a friend of mine that I was teaching with in uh, Korea, and he w- he also finished his uh, contract at about the same time, and he would tra- he was traveling around as well. And if he found a place he knew he was going to stay for a couple of weeks, he had my parents' phone number in Canada. He would give them a call and say, uh, "Oh, hey, Mr. And Mrs. K, I'm uh, staying at in this town in this country at this hotel," and then and I would call him periodically and say, "Oh, we got a, a message from your buddy. He's going to be here," and I'd try and hunt him down. And then we hang out for a couple of weeks, and then I said, I, I'm not a beach guy, so he, he liked to go to the uh, beach towns. So he said, all right, I'm going to go to this beach town. I said, all right, I'll go do this, I don't know, trek or something, and uh, we'll see you in the next country maybe. So, mm. so we leapfrogged around Asia for a few months. Mm. It was neat. All right. And then, okay, so the end of that trip was, uh, I guess I was in Nepal, and... Uh, I had decided, okay, it's coming up on Christmas. Christmas in Tibet would be awesome, but Christmas at home <laughs> would be awesomer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I started to make my way back home. I uh, went through Hungary, uh, got to uh, Washington, D.C., stayed with a buddy of mine there, up to New York, and then made it back to Ottawa uh, Christmas Eve. 
uh, knocked on the door. My family didn't know where I was. They thought I was somewhere in India, I think. And so it was a nice surprise. Nice. Yeah, it worked out well. That's really nice. Yeah, that'd be better than Tibet, because yeah. in Tibet, in a Buddhist country, you can't be attached to your presence. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. Yeah. You have to be very present, yeah. though. You can be present, but you can't be attached to it. Yeah. Yeah. So did you get presents? No, actually, that's a good point. Because <laughs> they didn't know you were coming. No. Ah, we didn't uh, get you anything. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I'm sure your listeners aren't interested in this story. Well, you don't know. It's, You'd be surprised. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, some questions. So you talked about eating uh, salty butter vodka. Uh-huh. What were some other interesting things that you ate? Uh, well, you know, they ate dog in Korea. Okay. So, you know, when in Rome. Yeah. So I actually tried it twice. So I had it in, in South Korea when I was living there. And, uh, and I tried it again. Uh, many years later, I had the opportunity to visit North Korea. Mm. And it actually tasted better in North, North Korea. Korea. Really? Yeah, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I it think was, people would be interested in hearing about this, about North Korea. North Korea is, is a very interesting place. It's a, it's a bit of the Truman Show. You know, you only see as a, as a visitor, you only see what they want you to see. So it's a mm-hmm. Potemkin village kind of situation. Mm. Um, and I was working on my PhD at the time. I was doing some writing about um, uh, security in East Asia. Mm. And I was doing some writing on North Korea specifically. And I figured, okay, it's, it's, it's better if I can sort of be on the ground in a place, uh, if I'm going to write with any authority on it, you know? So Who was I, the leader at that time? Uh, it was Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un. He had just taken over maybe a year or two. So this would have been 2014. And I think he took over in 2012, if I remember right. <clears throat> and uh, and I was actually working on a piece. Was, I was I was analyzing what are the, what, what's the outlook for him consolidating power versus could there be an uprising? And I thought, all right, well now I, I'd heard about this tour company, uh, Young Pioneer Tours, great company. Uh, I sort of fell in love with this company and I've gone on several tours with them since. Uh, but their their main bread and butter was bringing people into North Korea uh, affordably. And they had made all the contacts there. So, so I went with them. A couple of friends of mine uh, came with me who were also in my, my PhD program. And uh, we were there for Kim Il-sung's, I think it was 70th birthday. No, it would have been 100. Anyway, his birthday. Mm. And it was, uh, was it April 15th or 14th, I want to say. And it happened to be their birthday as well, both of them, one, one day separate. So they, well, they, well, they loved us. You share the birthday of the great leader. Mm. So we were, we were fortunate that way. Wow. Uh, but they, yeah, they put you up in the hotel. It's an island in the middle of the uh, river. You're not allowed out at night. You don't walk around the streets. You don't go anywhere without your three guides, always in threes, and uh, your minders, who are very nice. Um, their job is to chaperone you. Their job is to chaperone us and make sure that we didn't take pictures of anything military-related or mm. uh, otherwise get up to any shenanigans. So it was good. Mm. It was very interesting. I learned a lot. Mm. What did you get your PhD in? Uh, so I was in a... I did, I, my university's in, in uh, Taiwan, National Zhengzhou University. It's the International Doctorate in Asia-Pacific Studies. Mm. And uh, my dissertation was on civil-military relations in Taiwan. So what is the population in Taiwan? What do they think about the military? Because in Taiwan, the military is a very conservative, uh, it's a very conservative institution. I, I won't go into too much about the history of Taiwan, but it's, it's very old-fashioned, old-school, uh, and resistant to change. Whereas Taiwan society is moving forward very quickly. Mm. Uh, it was the first country in Asia to uh, pass uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, women Didn't are... realize that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow, that's a pretty big deal. A very big deal. They're very proud of, of sort of their, their... Since they became a democracy, sort of between 1987 and 1996, uh, they're very proud of uh, the, the society that they've built. Same-sex marriage, uh, women's equality. So women have a lot of opportunities in Taiwan. They can pretty much go to university, uh, get a career. Vote. Well, obviously, yeah, vote. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's very modern, very forward-looking. 
and compared to the military, so this gap is forming. So the military being resistant to change is, is so separate from the society. And then in, in, in terms of military, do you want to be of the society that you're protecting or do you want to be separate of it? And there are different philosophies and different ways of uh, how, how to incorporate, how to run a military within your society uh, in terms of like military sociology. Mm. So I, I guess I kind of took a roundabout way to say it, it, it's my field, I guess you could say it's military sociology. Mm. Uh, which kind of makes me a bit of an orphan in academic-wise because military folks don't really like sociologists button into their business, and sociologists tend not to like uh, military-related things. Mm-hmm. So mm. everyone hates me. So... You were you went back home for Christmas, yeah. And at this point, you've been to Korea, you've been to China, uh, Mongolia, China, Hong Kong. Then what happened? Uh, yeah. Okay. So I looked for a job. Not a lot of jobs in Canada, and I, I guess I kind of figured that I wasn't uh, didn't have the travel bug out of me yet. So uh, this friend of mine that I had traveled around Asia with uh, periodically, he ended up in Taiwan teaching English. And uh, I spoke to him on the phone. He said, a lot, a lot of jobs out here. So, all right. So I headed back. So, uh, I, I arrived in Taiwan, started to look for work. So we stayed at a hostel, started to look for jobs. Um, immediately, I got hired as a, an immigration consultant. I don't know how. They were advertising in the local paper. They wanted a Canadian citizen who's a lawyer, who speaks fluent Chinese. Uh, I didn't have any of these things. Just, but, just the Canadian part. Just the Canadian part, yeah. Okay. I, and I had a tie. And I think that's what we clinched me the job, is I happened mm. to own a tie, so I looked good in the interview. So they said, all right, you're hired. <laughs> that was day one. And then day two, I sat there and they signed over power of attorney to me of all of their clients, one after the other. Wow. Yeah, I, they, don't, they didn't know me from Adam. But uh, that's one of the things I loved about Taiwan, uh, is that the opportunities there. It's like a wild, wild west it's, well, in the it, east. In, in more ways than, than one. It's, uh, the expat community, uh, it's, it's almost like the old west in that you kind of live by your reputation. Mm-hmm. And if you're a man of your word, then that gets around and people trust you and then job opportunities will come up. And, but Spit if, and a handshake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of get a reputation for screwing people over, you know, then pe- people know that too. Shun. Yeah. Uh, and so I kind of liked that. The, so in, in Canada, you know, the opportunities I got in Taiwan, like, like, for example, working as an immigration consultant, I would have had to go to school for two, three years, get the certifications, uh, look for the job, and then realize I didn't like it. You know, you have to start over. But in Taiwan, you fall into these things. I mean, I, I say Taiwan, but for other people, it's Korea. For other people, it could be any other mm. sort of expat experience. Uh, where they need the English language proficiency and a guy with a Canadian passport. So um, as long as you didn't totally screw it up, you had a job. Now, and you could be fired just as easily, mind you. You know, if you did screw it up, you could be fired tomorrow. Unlike, you know, in Canada, it's really tough to fire someone. So, so you did kind of live, uh, and you could be you could be deported tomorrow. So. I worked under the table the whole time I was there. They technically weren't allowed to, to give a visa for this particular job. Hmm. So I'd make a visa run and come back on a visitor visa every couple of months, every 60 days. Just go over to Hong Kong, come back. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of nice, actually, to be forced to um, engage your travel bug and see a new place. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was nice. And, and it was very liberating. So... We often talk about what it's like to be an expat in a, in a Chinese society. They're very focused on uh, like circles, a circle of family and then circle of acquaintances. And, and so, you know, you look at uh, their influence by Confucianism, for example, which has very distinct roles for people. How, what kind of a, a son must you be? What kind of a father must you be? What kind of a leader? What are your responsibilities as an administrator? 
And as Taiwan is, is, is modernizing, some of these roles are applied, let's say, unequally. So, for example, uh, traditionally in Chinese culture, girls' daughters aren't highly valued mm. because they're, they are literally given to the family that she marries into, and she becomes a daughter of that family. So it's almost seen as a waste of resources, whereas you want a son. I mean, that's why they have such uh, different rates than we do as far as the different genders, uh, birth rates. So, but as they become modernized, it's really interesting that because there was so little sort of expected of the women and so much expected of the sons, that pressure is still on the men, the young men, and not much pressure on the women. So they could make a decision to go to university or engage in a career instead of getting married mm. uh, with, with much less pressure on them than the more traditional families would put on the sons. Interesting. Um, yeah, and, and no pressure. See, nowhere in any of these concentric circles do foreigners fit in. So there's literally nothing expected of, the, of expats in that society. And so you pretty much, you're, you're left to your own devices. It's an incredible freedom, which can be a good thing or it can be dangerous. Because you could, and I've seen people sort of lose themselves in, in drugs or alcohol or sex or just living without any community around you to be able to say, hey, you know, get your ass in gear, clean yourself up and stop this behavior. Um, but if you, if you have that kind of, you bring your own anchor sort of, then, uh, then you, you can benefit from that kind of freedom. And I enjoy that kind of freedom. I was going to say, that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, not, not, not to bring things down, but yeah, it, it, it can be tough on people. And especially, it's a, like you said, it's, it's, it's the Wild West. Mm. So you don't have a lot of the um, resources, say, that we have here, uh, mental health resources and whatnot uh, available to the, to the expat community. There, there's, there's a few things, and there, there's probably more now as the years have gone on, but... You know, I've had a couple of friends who've just disappeared on trips. One, we sort of heard back later, he'd gone over to Cambodia to rent a gun to shoot it. You know how they do that over there. They would mm. shoot at some animals, and, and he just turned it on himself. And, and none of us knew that he was even close to this, you know? Oh, wow. So it can be, it can be tough uh, that wise, but hmm. such is life. Yeah. Oh, very fascinating stuff. So, you have you've had the opportunity to see a lot of contrast, okay? Right, contrast uh, like where you grew up in Canada or North America, let's mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I'm curious, what what are the things that some of the Asian countries could learn from us, and what do we need to learn from them? Let's start with what we need to learn from them. Oh, I don't know. Is that a loaded question? I always remember this cartoon I saw of a uh, typical Westerner wearing an Indian kind of outfit, looking uh, at an Indian person from India wearing a business suit. So they're, they're taken from us, we're taken from them. And I think each of us, each of us has, each of the, the, the cultures I mean, has a, a, an idealized view of, of the other. You know, so we, we tend to think that it's, uh, sometimes they call it Orientalism, this idea that they have uh, all the answers. That they, uh, everything that ails us uh, societally and, and, and psychologically, we can, we can turn to the East to find our mm -hmm. answers. And, and that does, I mean, it, it does help many people. Uh, and, and they tend to think that, okay, we have the answers they're looking for, especially in terms of uh, how to do business, how to uh, uh, build an industrial base, uh, so I, I hesitate to jump in and say, we need to do this like them. They need to do this like mm. us. I, I tend to think of myself as a sociologist. I like to observe mm. as opposed to judge. Well, let me ask in a different way. Okay. What have you benefited from learning from yeah. those countries personally? If anything, it's made me sort of more patriotic a Canadian. I think just being away from Canada and seeing how different people live and in many cases and in many countries, uh, just the abject poverty and uh, uh, poor government and uh, corruption. And so I'm, 
I'm constantly reminded how how blessed I am to have been happened to have been born in Canada. Uh, we make our mistakes, you know. We have our problems. We're not a perfect society, uh, but we're constantly working on it, and and I think we're doing a pretty good job. And so that experience, I guess you could say, I guess that experience of of having the opportunity to to visit places like that uh, helps me to not get carried away, I think, uh, when it comes to judging even my own culture, hmm. if that makes any sense. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, Carlos, I understand that uh, Dean here was on your trip to Kilimanjaro. It was uh, the triumvirate. Yeah, uh, Seamus, Dean, and myself. Um, yeah, it was our first um, trip away. I mean, we've, we've been to the desert together and things like that, but we've never gone anywhere. I really enjoyed that a lot. So did I. Yeah, so it was did I. a lot of fun. Um, you really get a chance to get to know uh, a person's rhythms when you're hanging out for three weeks together, you know, mm. and especially dealing with chaotic changes in the environment and physical challenges and sleep challenges and all the different things that have to be get worked out excess heat excess cold <laughs> you know mm -hmm. all those things yeah um so yeah it was a real pleasure a real pleasure likewise no i i just had a great time uh you guys are so easy going uh i've traveled with seamus a few times uh but yeah that was the first time we had traveled together and, and especially a place that could be tough could be a tough travel africa mm. it's not easy yeah uh, but and we were lucky enough to fall in with some people, some good people there who 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 helped make it easy for us. Mm. Shout out to Walter out there. Oh my gosh, Walter! He's yeah, an angel. what a man! What a man! Fantastic. Mm. Mm. We we were um, half joking because we were kind of probably half serious about it. Um, you know, he gets our vote for you know prime minister or president, whatever they have for their government. There, <laughs> I, I forget. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, if we if we could vote, we would vote for him. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Nice. Nice. Yeah, good people. Good mm. people out there. Mm. Um, I think we, we probably started a tradition of um, going places. Because we almost did that this year. You know, I didn't mention this, but we were um, planning initially on doing a Dia de, Dia de los Muertos um, journey in oh. Mexico. We were going to go a little bit south of Mexico City in a place called Morelia and, and visit, you know, Island of the Dolls and all these different things that we were going to do. And it just... Didn't quite work out this year, but uh, we're planning on doing that next year, aren't we? Let's hope so. I hope that the schedule works out. <clears throat> I was really keen to uh, to go this year, as you know, I was yep. pushing it. Yep. Um, but what, with COVID and everything and the lockdowns, I suppose it's best we wait. Mm. We'll, we'll wait till next year. Yeah. Mm. So, Dean, where, where where is your permanent home these days? Canada. Canada. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 I live in Canada, um, in Ontario, still. Uh, but I split my time. Uh, sometimes I'm traveling. And last year I was lucky enough to get invited to to be an, uh, a visiting professor in Budapest, uh, just for a semester. And uh, my wife lives in New York. She's uh, posted in New York. And so I pretty much split my time between the two. Mm. Did you meet your wife in Taiwan? In Taiwan, yes. She's okay. Taiwanese. Uh, she works for the uh, MOFA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Okay. And so they get posted to this or that consulate or embassy. And in 2014, I think it was, they sent us, sent her, but sent us to uh, Budapest. And then after a couple of years, they gave her the opportunity to go to New York. And that's one of those postings at the consulate in New York where you don't say no. Mm. You know, if you say no, then you'll never get your top pick again. Mm. And It's so, too important. Yeah. I see. And is this in the city? It's in the city, so okay. we're in. Uh, so we we live in Hell's Kitchen, which sounds a lot worse than it is. It's actually a really nice neighborhood, uh, part of it. Uh, but she wanted to be walking distance to the office. And the office is right near Grand Central Station, so it's maybe a fifteen-minute walk. So yeah. if you call it Hell's Kitchen, it sounds bad. Yeah. So then nobody wants to move there, and that's the secret. There you right? go. Like calling Iceland Greenland and Greenland Iceland, you know, like they, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I think it's just a holdover from the days when it was a Hell's Kitchen, and mm. now it's uh, much, old, much better. Yeah. Pulling the old switcheroo, eh, Satch? That's right. Yeah. Greenland and Iceland. Yeah.
I have a, I have a question about the expat community in Asia. Okay. It seems like such an interesting and unique slice of culture. I guess I, I sort of have this romantic idea of like some guy in like a flannel suit drinking in like a bar in the rain in, you know, some Asian country. And it's like this like almost like a cyberpunk kind of a fantasy. It, there was, <laughs> you'd meet, so I, I, I was, again, fortunate enough to meet different people in, uh, who had arrived at different times. So there was, there was that. Mm-hmm. Maybe the guys who arrived in the 60s and 70s, who were, by the time I was there in the 90s, were getting on in years. But mm-hmm. uh, they so had like come... like guys who served in Vietnam, maybe? Exactly. And Taiwan at the time was an R&R uh, destination. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, were, there were still some bases there, uh, U.S. bases in Taiwan. And, and some guys just stayed. And they were sort of, I think, the closest that I've seen to what you were describing. Okay. And then, and then later in the '90s, so in the '80s, I met a few people actually, not more than more than a couple, who uh, were gold smugglers in Asia. Oh wow! Yeah, so they would uh, just travel around, uh, buy gold. I forget where they were buying gold, but they were going from India to Japan through Korea, oh. one up to Nepal. Are we talking like raw gold, like raw ore? Gold. So like they had all the tricks. They they were they would. One guy was telling me they had a guy on their crew called the professor, and he managed to, 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 to whip up this spray. He could spray your passport page. So when you got stamped in, you could erase it, oh. sneak out the back door, and then you know, come back in later on. Dude. Was this guy an expat? The, yeah, yeah. yeah and sure. uh, another trick they had, they would take these, well, it was the 80s, so they had these big boom boxes. You remember those <laughs> yes. big ghetto blasters? Yeah. yeah. Well, they would, they would open it up, and they'd find a part in there that they could unscrew, and they bring it over to the goldsmith and give him the gold. Here, just remake us this part, but in gold. Wow. And they paint it black and then screw it back in and just go through hmm. with that. How much gold can you get out of a, out of a ghetto blaster? <laughs> More than you get in your ass. <laughs> my, my, my friend loved to tell this story whenever he was drunk. He was going in, he was smuggling gold into Nepal. And uh, he carried it in. In the most uncomfortable place he could <laughs> for, for ten years, <laughs> his ass. <laughs> and they did. There was really low tech in Nepal in those days, so they didn't have uh, X-rays. They just had a stool, and everyone literally, literally, <laughs> in more ways than one. And you would go and you would stand on the stool, and they would watch you jump off the stool. Oh, and, really? it, and if nothing shimmied down your leg, then you weren't. They weren't like gold. putting on the gloves and going in. They were like no, no, no. Yeah. They were just the stool. Yeah. And yeah. he and he got real nervous. He told me in his stories. Cool. So he just sort of did an end run around the the, the stamping the stamping desks, ran out of the airport, jumped in a taxi, and just took off. Wow! So mm. that, yeah, that's, a, that's it, a classy way to handle that situation. Yeah. Wow! Nice. But one one friend of mine, good friend of mine, said, "Yeah, yeah, you think it's fun?" He says, "But the first time I got into a a, a gunfight car chase in Hong Kong, I realized I had to get out of the business." Uh, so, and and so and so so many of these guys ended up so when they they I guess they standardized the gold prices and put up, put all the smugglers out of business they all became English teachers you know or journalists <laughs> well, or well, whatever it's the natural progression isn't it yeah. you know, the money is where the money is right yeah so, so is but, that the kind of teacher you were talking about you wanted to be like <laughs> from high school <laughs> yeah maybe I wouldn't tell high school kids that story right but you could use that to fuel your you know. I guess so. Educational hegemony. (laughs) Until it got back to the parents, then I'd probably be in trouble. (laughs) Then you could just claim it was fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I lied to your kid. Yeah, that's right. But the the, the most recent groups coming in of expats, of these young young kids that come and they want to learn the language... They're just amazing. They they are on it. They're academic. They're smart. They don't get crazy drunk like used to happen so it's interesting to see the different generations and it's interesting to think that the face one culture shows another isn't always necessarily the true face or representative of the whole of the country you know Uh, never no it never is it's interesting because this is giving me interesting perspectives on when i see people from other cultures in my country you know, they don't necessarily represent everything about the culture they're coming from. Certainly not. And, and you always want to put on a good face, too, for, for guests. Yeah, so, oh, well, some people do. <laughs> yeah, not everyone. But I found that, in, in, especially in Asia, they uh, go out of their way 
to be kind and generous and to, to outsiders, and uh, especially especially in Taiwan, you could lose your your wallet on a on a park bench and come back the next day, and fifty fifty, it's still there. Hmm. Wow, it's it's Big really deal. yeah, that's amazing. It is wow. But then there's stuff they don't talk about. So if I want to do research on things like death, uh, death rituals, hmm. uh, it's it's very sensitive, uh, especially speaking to a foreigner. So it can be tough that way. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. So was this something you tried to do? Uh, a friend you, of mine was doing her uh, master's thesis on uh, death. Okay. And, and so we talked at length about the difficulties of this type of research. Sounds like something William Volman would write a short story about. You see, you sort of, you see the outside of it, and it's hard to get into uh, the mechanics of it, let's say. So, so you'll just be walking down the street in, in let's say, Taiwan, and, and a, a temple will be having a celebration. And they'll bring, uh, there'll be the, the god, which is a, which is a figurine of, of whatever, Matsu, Guanggong, or one of the gods, and they'll be just taking it down the street. They have the the donkey, which is like a, a media spirit medium, who is possessed, and he'll be maybe you know self-flagellating, bleeding, and uh, as a foreigner you'll see this, but no one will really want to say, oh, here's what's happening. So you have to do mm. some digging to kind of figure out what's happening. Yeah. So there's a lot that's hidden to 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 us as foreigners. wrote a book i i did i just i just yeah in fact it's sitting on the table right next to you it is you, you got my book i do <laughs> thank you for buying my book oh, that's that's one yeah. <laughs> so I tell us about it tell, i have tell it too, us the title i'm ready yet but i have it too yeah what's uh, the title well, and i hope you enjoy it when you do get around to reading it it's uh it's it's a slim book there's not a lot to it, it won't take you a lot of time it's called the men in no man's land a journey into beer tawil uh, do you, you want to hear the story about the book? Yes, mm-hmm. please. Yes. Well, um, where do I start? So, okay, back to the, the North Korea trip. So the company, Young Pioneers, who brought us into North Korea, uh, they, do, they take tours all over the place. And their, their tagline is, uh, it's a tour company for people who hate tour companies. <laughs> I will take you to places your mom won't want you to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I really like the ethic of this company. They, they have fun. They tend to drink a lot, um, and they just do these crazy but fun projects. One of their projects was uh, we're going to crowdfund a private island purchase. So we're going to buy an island. Whoa. Yeah, and this was a multi-year project. They were gathering uh, investors. I, I didn't have enough money to invest, but I, I was helping them to promote it and however, however I could. And so they finally bought an island, and the owner, Gareth, he's, uh, we've be- we, in the years we've become friends, uh, he's, he's fascinated by uh, micronations. And so he decided we're going to declare our, ourselves a micronation. I was wondering if you were going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Based on this island. Islandia. I always pronounce it Islandia, but I think it's Islandia is the proper pronunciation. Hmm. The land of the island. And uh, so to promote <laughs> the project, they said, okay, we have a micronation. Let's claim, just, just like the old days, let's go and claim some terra nullius. And the only real big patch of terra nullius left on Earth is this place called Birtawil. And it's located right on the border. It is the border. It's uh, between Egypt and Sudan. Uh, there's two borders, one that was, was written up in uh, 1899, another one in 1904, that are slightly different. And based on a disagreement over which border Egypt recognizes compared to which border Sudan recognizes... Dispute. There's a dispute. So there's the Khalaid Triangle, which has a city, it has access to the sea, and both sides want that. And because both sides want that... Neither side claims Birtawil, which is just a patch of desert. And from all, for all intents and purposes, from our research, it's, it, it was just an empty patch of desert. So they said, all right, let's, let's do a trip up there. Let's plan a, a, a trip up there. We can plant the Islandia flag, uh, just, just have some fun, make it a, a PR campaign for our island crowdfunding So you, you use the word Terra Nellia? 
Terra Nullius. Yeah, it's like a Terra no Nullia. man's land, right? Literally, no man's land. Oh, Terra Nullia. Yeah, like null land. Null, exactly. Yes, that's. A, I'd never heard that term before. That's interesting. It's uh, it's an old term. I hadn't heard it. Either, it just but, means yeah. it just means no one owns this yet. Basically, no country has claimed this. Terra Nullia. Yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that that even existed on Earth at this yeah. day. I, exactly. It's just this weird uh, disagreement over borders hmm. that it still exists. And there, and so there was a guy I think in 2012 or 2014, an American guy that went out there to claim it. Uh, he went up. He went from uh, Egypt and headed south. Uh, planted his uh, flag designed by his daughter because he said. Uh, I want to make my daughter a princess. So he declared himself king so his daughter could be a bona fide princess. Uh, Lovely story, made all the papers. Morning, princess. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then another guy from India did the same thing a few years later. Planted his flag, declared himself a king. Then another guy from Russia came out of the woodwork and said, even before them, I did that. So this whole planting a flag in the Terranelius thing, I guess, was a trend. So there's hope for me yet. Well, I don't know. You're going to have to fight with those guys over uh, who has sovereignty. <laughs> uh, and, and so the reason I wrote the book was because I wanted to put to rest who, who pro- properly has sovereignty. As it turns out, when we got there, it's not empty. And it's part of the, the, the lands used by a nomadic tribe called the Ababda. The Ababda tribe have been uh, in and out of there. Uh, this whole area, the eastern desert since the days of the Romans. And, uh, and they're still there today. And in fact, they, they discovered gold there about 15 years ago. And because no one owns it, the Ababda have set up these very elaborate, uh, machinery-heavy gold excavation operations. And so they're, they're, they're doing quite well pulling gold out of the ground there. And so when we were driving around, we would see maybe the odd you know, guy with a metal detector and then maybe a, a small encampment of people working, slightly bigger machinery. And at w- one point, we visited a, uh, a pretty substantial operation. Well, that's when they kind of got nervous, and they called the, the, the main camp. It's kind of like, if you've seen Deadwood? Remember oh, Deadwood? Yeah. One of my favorite shows. Fantastic show. Yeah, I love it. Just how this camp, Deadwood was about how this camp becomes a city, you mm-hmm. know? And, and so this looked like the early stages of Deadwood, but, you know, with a Sudanese take. And so they sent out a car uh, and with a bunch of guys with a bunch of guns to come and get us and escort us back to their main encampment and uh, said, OK, uh, you're not going anywhere until we figure out what we're going to do with you. So they were very nervous about uh, having a bunch of foreigners walking around their land um, Potentially there, maybe we were working for a mine company, they thought. Maybe we could uh, take their gold. prospecting or something. Yeah. And so they took us captive. So we were held there until the, uh, the chiefs could be contacted and come up and decide what to do with us. That's such a boring life you've led, Dean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really. Like, get out a little. <laughs> I, I didn't look for this. <laughs> so what did they decide to do with you? Well, they... Um, they were, I say captive, but they were very generous. You know, they said, okay, you're not going anywhere, but we're going to sit you here. You were their ward. Yeah, I guess so. Because there's no, there's no military there, there's no police, there's no government authority there, so whoever has the guns is the authority. And so they, they, they sit us down. The first thing they did was give us a bunch of cold drinks, you know, and so make us feel comfortable, but we're going to wait until the, the chiefs get there. So the, the sheiks, they arrived uh, early the next morning. We waited all day, waiting, waiting, waiting. They never showed up at night, but they showed up in the morning, they came over to talk to us. We negotiated with them through our uh, guide, and he was trying to explain to them that we were just idiots, basically. <laughs> we're idiot foreigners coming on this crazy road trip and they're had no business they're there. They're just dumb. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and there were two groups. There were the, old, uh, the older, wiser chiefs, and then there were the younger, maybe a little bit more hot-headed chiefs. And, uh, and, and I could see that there was some disagreement between them. And we speculated that the younger guys wanted to make an, eva- uh, an example of us, whereas the older guys maybe wanted to deal with us quietly. And they said, all right, we're going to go talk about it. So they went over their way. We went over our way, had, a, had breakfast. As we're walking away, uh, somebody shot 
fired their their uh, weapon at us. Wow. Uh, once, then twice, then a third time. And I remember, I remember thinking, okay, you're not trying to kill us, not after this, not yet. Um, you're trying to scare us. And so I remember thinking, I, I'm not going to change my pace. I'm just going to keep walking at the pace I'm walking, even though I really want to run right now. Uh, but so they were pretty angry at us. But fortunately, the old guys won out. So long story short, uh, they let us go. Obviously, I'm here, so they let us go. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, okay, before you go, we will kill a goat and give you a meal and you stay with us. We'll be your hosts and then we'll, we'll help you on your way. And it turned, out, it turned out for the best. One of our guys was really sick with uh, heat exhaustion and he would have been really, really bad, if not dead, just bouncing around in a hot cab. Uh, for the next day. So the day, we had to basically spend a day there. He was lying down in the shade, we keeping him cool, feeding him water, giving him food if he could keep it down. And he needed that day to rest. And we also, on the way up, it's a three-day ride up from uh, Khartoum. We had five four-by-fours. Two of them uh, had engine problems on the way up. On I think it was day two. Uh, had to head back to a, a little outpost that we called Mad Max Town. Hmm for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And then we <laughs> consolidated uh, into the, the last three and, and f- took the rest of the trip up. But on just, just moments, really, before uh, we were sort of kidnapped, uh, the, the truck that I was in was in a, a really dusty patch, hit a, a rock, and it just put a dent into the sump. And so while we could still, it could still drive, you, you could hear the, Sort of the, the pistons hitting the, the piston rods hitting the sump. And so you, we, we knew we wouldn't make it back to Khartoum three mm-hmm. days sort of on the, uh, in the open desert before you even hit road. Uh, so we'd have to get that fixed. And during our day of captivity, their, their mechanic helped us to fix that. So, so it worked out for the best. Wow. It worked out for the best. Well, it really did work out for the best. That's cool. It did. And so the reason I wrote the book was they told us, they said, look, we know about this American guy who comes to claim our land and declares himself our king, and he, and he, he was a very silly man. And we, we really don't want to see any more of that. So we want you to tell the outside world this land is ours. It's not just for anyone to come and claim and to take. Mm-hmm. And so this is, a, this is um, I guess, fulfilling that promise that... Uh, that I wrote the book to, because I, because again, I looked, I did research. There's no indication of any of any uh, outpost there. It's like population zero, pretty much everywhere you look. Uh, Wikipedia, all of that, and so I wanted to to just have something out there that um, so people knew. Okay, here's the situation. Don't go there to, to, to try and claim it. Uh, don't go there uh, stupidly like we did, uh, and certainly not without uh, hiring a good uh, tour, local tour company who has contacts with the Ababda, who can get their prior permission. Do you have any other books um, that you're planning on writing or working on now? I'm working on a story about... Uh, uh, voodoo in Haiti. Uh, I, not a book, but I. It, it, it was very difficult to get back home, sort of, uh, for, uh, during COVID, and so I wound up for a few days in Haiti during the journey back, and uh, made some some wonderful friends there. They're just so poor, and so much of their their GDP is tourism, and of course, it's all gone to hell for all the global lockdowns. And so I wanted to, I, I want to finish this article, get it up somewhere, let people know that it's a, it's a safe and fascinating place to, to go and spend your tourist dollar. Uh, so I'm working on that right now. When you say the voodoo culture, did you get a chance to um, participate in any voodoo rituals? Uh, to observe, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, I was very lucky that uh, uh, the guide that I had hired, and I recommend it to anyone who wants to go to Haiti, Asda, you know, he... I, I mentioned my interest in culture and in uh, belief systems and, and, of course, voodoo. And so I said, you know, anything you can set up like that, uh, I would love to, 
I would love to visit. And so he, the, the day I arrived, uh, he had set up, uh, arranged for an invitation for me to attend a voodoo ceremony. Nice. Yeah, and it wasn't like a, a show ceremony at a nightclub type of thing. It was a, a local societe. Uh, they were having their regular uh, ritual where the loa would uh, mount or possess uh, one of the uh, voodooisans, you know, the, the congregation. Mm-hmm. And the loa are the spirits. The loa are the spirits, yeah, mm-hmm. sorry. And, uh, and so, yeah, they invited me to that. It was, uh, it was an honor to be there. And and to see that and to see it sort of how how it's practiced for real, so this mm-hmm. was in the evening. Uh, earlier in the day, we had, we had come by uh, and they had given they gave me a tour around the uh, uh, the temple, hmm. and uh, it was it was uh, really really interesting. Is to see sort of behind the, the behind the curtain, if you will. So the, the uh, shrine to uh, Brav Gedi. For example, he's the the Getty or a type of loa, like a type of spirit, and the head Getty is uh, Baron Samdi, who's yeah, kind of famous. I'm just going to ask you about him. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's the he's the first man who ever died, and and so he is the very very Lord powerful spirit. Yeah, Lord of the underworld. And they said they, they showed me around. They showed me their 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 shrine. And said, oh, here's 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 the skull. I think they you know I'm a foreigner. I'm a, I'm a, a tourist. Uh, he's going to want to see the skulls, and he's going to want to see the, the macabre stuff, because we know those guys. So, yeah, they showed me that stuff. And, and they said, okay, here's, here's Brav Getty's drink. And it was, uh, it was rum infused with chilies. Wow. Yeah, super hot stuff. And they said, Brav Getty drinks this. And I said, oh, Brav Getty's pretty brav. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think they, they got a kick out of that little joke and then said, okay, well, it's okay if you come then to our ceremony, I think. Hmm. Broke the ice a little bit. Well, there's, there's a lot of that uh, seemingly morbid mm-hmm. symbology uh, in Tibetan Buddhism as well. Sure. You know, all the skulls and body parts and images of people's eyes being torn out by crows and mm-hmm. vultures and, you know, it's this kind of impermanence idea. So I just think that's interesting that that's also present in the voodoo. They're closer to death than we allow ourselves to be as sort of Westerners and where we put ourselves, we, we separate ourselves from it. We, did. we, we didn't in the Middle Ages, though. No. I'm sorry, Middle Ages, excuse me, um, the Elizabethan yeah. Shakespearean times, you know, there was lots of references to sex and death all the time, and then we kind of stopped doing that. <coughs> sorry. You know, early Victorian we, and Edwardian times. We did, we did, and I think it's a shame, I think... Uh, it's it's unfortunate that our culture is sort of so averse to discussing things like that, mm-hmm. um, because I think it's more healthy to to see death as a part of life, and definitely in in voodoo they do. Uh, other cultures, uh, I have um, there's a village in Malawi I care about a lot, and I keep in touch with the pastor of the church down there. I'd gone down there to do a, a, a documentary for them. And we keep in really close touch. He's such a wonderful man and uh, works so hard for his community. But they're just, people dying all the time of, of this disease or that, even, even crocodile attacks, like just doing things like getting water from the river could, could be deadly. And they just live with that as part of life, whereas we, you know, we look for someone to blame if there's a car accident. I, I think... We're a little bit too oversensitive to it. We get, we, I, I just don't think it's a very, very positive attitude that we have when it comes to death. Uh, the healthy attitude, I should mm-hmm. say. Uh, it's an unrealistic so attitude. Maybe that's one thing we could learn from other countries. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There's no visual on a podcast, but if you can imagine um, uh, Jonathan Frakes from uh, Star Trek New Generation, who played, uh, you know, number one, mm. um, and Orson Welles coming together in a particle, mm. you know, integrator <laughs> yeah. of some kind. Jonathan Frakes and Orson Welles. Yeah. That's actually, can, can you see yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah. I, I mean, look at his it. face. Yeah. I see it. It's there. All we need is some Dom Perignon. And, Get him drunk, you know. Yeah. And you know, I was, <laughs> I, was I was telling uh, our our friend of the show and mutual friend Seamus the other night that 
Dean is one of the people that I imagine wearing a vest. Not just any vest. I'm talking about like a, like a camouflage green style vest, like, like mm-hmm. you'd wear out on an adventure. Yes. And yeah. he was literally adventure wearing vest. one the night <laughs> I saw him the other night, you know, recently. Yeah, like he's have wearing an a vest, vest, right? You know, an adventure vest with little pockets and everything, and there's stuff in the pockets, I'm sure. Interesting idols and things like that. Did you, did you actually say that? I did. He, he did. told no, me he that did. I'm not kidding. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. Did. It's true. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Dean's a man who's, who's got a distinguished beard and looks yeah. really good in a hat. I think, I yes. think we need a Dean action figure. We do. <laughs> With we like definitely do. different vests you could put on when yeah. you could put like a compass in the pocket, you know, yeah. a flask. Yeah. Definitely the multiple pockets. Yeah, for sure. And uh, what's that, that scarf you wear? I forget what it's called. The schmog? The schmog, yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah, just depending on where he's at. Yeah. Yeah. Looks, you know, like Very a good. foreign correspondent for some news team of some kind, yeah. Be fun. Yeah. All the kids will want one. I don't know if all the kids will want one. Everybody pegs you as a journalist, you know, <laughs> when you travel. Do that or your CIA. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> awesome. Well, this is lovely, and I'm sure we'll probably do something like this again. Uh, it's, it's just fun to, to get in the same room and flow. I mean, we didn't have any plans for what we were going to ask you or anything, but it's just, it's just fun to connect and so put some microphones in the same in room with you guys. Yeah, this is cool. Oh, I have one more question for yeah. you. Yeah. The first person who you knew from our group mm-hmm. is Seamus, who's been in two other episodes of us. Yes, good episodes, ours. by the way. Yeah, we enjoyed them very much. So yeah. can you just share a little bit about how you met Seamus? Yeah, actually, that's a good indication of what you were asking about, sort of the expat existence over there is, is uh, uh, if you're a foreigner, at least at that time, if you're a foreigner and you're walking around the streets of Taiwan, uh, someone's going to want to put you in a commercial. Uh, they'll put a lab coat on you, and you'll be selling some really sketchy stuff on TV. And uh, and so I was walking around with some friends of mine. It was after work, so I was still wearing a tie. And someone came came up to us and said, can we take your picture? And one of my friends really wanted to, to be an actor. So he said, yeah, take our picture. So they took our pictures, took our names. And before too long, it was just a few weeks, I got a call and said, we want you to be in this commercial. Bring your tie. This is another job I think I got only because I had a tie. (laughs) We need a businessman-looking guy, and we know you want a tie. So bring it and meet me at my office at midnight. That sounded sounded sketchy. It sounded really sketchy. Oh, boy. You hire a bodyguard. It was a casting couch situation, was it? No. (laughs) Thank thank goodness, no. Um, But... I, so, uh, yeah, I went. And by this time, I was working for the newspaper. I actually got off at around midnight, so it worked Literally out perfectly. Or figuratively. Figuratively. <laughs> okay. I got off work. Just checking. After we put that baby to bed. <laughs> and, uh, and so I went down to the office and just sat there with my tie, and uh, the, the boss gave me a couple of beers. When I had signed the paperwork, I didn't want him to... It was a really sketchy operation, so I didn't want him to know who I was, really. And so I told him I was American, and I told him I was from New York, and, uh, and I was, I guess, talking a little bit like this, you know, just to kind of sell it. And, uh, <laughs> and then this, this crazy tall guy with these long dreadlocks down to his ass and a big shit-eating grin on his face walks in. It's maybe 10 minutes after I did. He says, hey, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he introduced himself as Seamus. Well, it's Shudza, actually. That's right, he the lion. himself as yeah. Shudza, which is yeah, t- a Chinese for lion. Uh, I, I introduced myself and uh, didn't think anything of it. Okay, he's another guy in a commercial. We had a few beers. They put us into a van to drive us down to the location where they'd be filming the commercial. And as, as we were getting into the van, Shudza says, I ain't getting in no plane, Hannibal. <laughs> <laughs> A team reference. A team reference. <laughs> I just cracked up, and I, I like this guy's sense of humor. I sense we'll be friends for quite some time, <laughs> and and sure enough, we we've been friends for for a long time since we've 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 traveled together through Central America. We we went running with the bulls. Uh, with you, we went up Kilimanjaro. Mm-hmm. It's been uh, it's been an adventure knowing him, and it's been an adventure knowing you guys. Wow. So. So you fell into the tractor beam and yes. you, were, <laughs> you couldn't escape. <laughs> Still working on that escape. That's cool. <laughs> right on. Well, it's been wonderful talking with you, man. Likewise. Mm-hmm. Let's do it again. Yeah. Okay. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados, 
and Satch Purcell. Special thanks to our guest today, Dean Karolekis. My name is Oliver Altine. I produced the show. I also wrote our theme song, which you're listening to right now. And the interstitial music this time was a little thing I called Whirly Bird. It's basically a Wurlitzer electric piano with some 808 beats going on underneath. Please subscribe to The Authenticity Show if you haven't already done so. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, check out our YouTube page, and you can find our website at authenticityshow.com. Thanks for listening, and have an authentic day.